I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman podcasts. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! Interviews with fans and people, people who Hey dummies, welcome to another Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host Justin Michael and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears about the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, the Zatara School of Ventriloquism. Learn to throw your voice from a magician with a surprising amount of knowledge about ventriloquism and not magic. Now, you might be wondering, why did Justin call us dummies? Did he turn into a full-on jerk over the last two weeks, or was it a thematic cue from an episode we'll be covering from the very first appearance of the Batman villain Scarface of the Ventriloquist? Trick question. It's both. I'm a jerk now, dummies. Today, I will be chatting with writers, comedians, and creators of the Devastator Press. Then, I'll sit down with famed horror and comics writer Joe Lansdale to talk about writing this episode of Batman. Then, stay tuned, because I've got a special new segment to cap things off. But first... Today's episode, Read My Lips. Police are baffled by a series of crimes executed with clockwork precision. Batman investigates and discovers that the crimes are planned by a mob boss known as Scarface. He traces Scarface to his lair, a deserted mannequin warehouse, and discovers, to his astonishment, and really, you gotta see this guy's face in the episode, that this crime czar is a wooden dummy, manipulated by a mild-mannered man called the Ventriloquist. Original air date, May 10th, 1993. Story by Alan Burnett and Michael Reeves. Teleplay by Joe R. Lansdale. Directed by Boyd Kirkland. Music composed by Shirley Walker with animation services by Tokyo Movie Shinisha Company. Featuring George Zunza as the ventriloquist and Scarface, Earl Bowen as Rhino, Neil Ross as Ratso, and Joe Piscopo as a manager. How about that? This episode is one of the greats. It introduces us to a classic Batman rogue. It's got a jazzy score and a wonderful sense of direction. Look, every major appearance by Scarface and the ventriloquist, of which there are three over the course of the series, I think are particularly good episodes. And this one, this origin story, lives up to everything you want out of a gangster with a gimmick with a dissociative personality disorder. Granted, I don't know how many other gangsters with gimmicks with those disorders there are, but let's just call Two-Face sort of in that boat as well. The backdrop is somewhat grounded in gangland and highlights the quiet moments and shadows where steam hisses out of vents and thugs silently walk down alleyways with no action or dialogue. It feels like nothing you'd get in an action cartoon these days for kids, and I really love the patience and commitment to noir pacing. The episode is definitely a weird one, but it's everything you want out of Batman the Animated Series, guys. Today's fan, 
Amanda Meadows and Jeffrey Golden are comedy writers who have contributed to McSweeney's, Disney Comics, BuzzFeed, and many more things. They are also the founders and co-publishers of The Devastator, the only all-humor press in America. Seriously, that's true. I met them after creating a piece for their quarterly magazine, and they're a great and funny couple with a lot of insight when it comes to comics and cartoons in general. We're going to talk about Batman, we're going to talk not about Batman, how's that for sentence structure, and then we're going to talk about Batman some more. So, please, enjoy. Episode is, this episode is fantastic. I love this episode. Okay. It's it's everything that I remember Batman the animated series being. Yes. It's not like a specific memory. It's like there's a lot of like episodes that I remember very specifically, but this is just like generally speaking, like here's Batman the animated series. Like it encapsulates is, what you <laughs> remember in right. a single 22 minutes. Yes, exactly. Definitely. I remember it being dark. I remember being heavily influenced by noir. I yes. remember it always having like you have some kind of zany over the top villain. Yes. And uh Batman uses detective work and solves the and solves the crimes. Like right. that's what I think of as like basic building block of Batman like yeah. idea like here's the foundation that then we can have our fancy Harley Quinns <laughs> and we can build on that with our Mr. Freezes those but are the flourishes those but are the flourishes psychologically destructive villains right yeah. that's right yeah I'm uh, more interested in the like very well designed goon character <laughs> designs those are there are oh. so many different kinds of goons they have like different there's the like there's the ones who are clearly Italian yes. and there's like the Russian looking guy like everyone looks a little different. It's, it's not, not one a... standard cookie cutter goon. <laughs> stock goons. Yeah. They didn't go on to uh, to the stock goon website. <laughs> no stockgoons.biz. Stockgoons.biz. Download the you get a subscription for uh, twenty five dollars a month. You get you get twenty <laughs> credits <laughs> and each goon is two credits. So you get you get you can you have to yeah. download the goons. Right. And... Some of the better goons are like fifteen credits. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and you, you can want... never piece it together. If you want the goon <laughs> named Germs, yeah, that's, be prepared to pay that's fifteen. You know, he's got a personality in addition <laughs> to a Tommy gun. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We're already talking about this, so I feel like we, yeah, this is we part dove of it already. In. We yeah, dove into doing goon it. talk. Uh, <laughs> welcome to goon talk. <laughs> welcome to goon. Talk an hour hey. of chatting goons. A couple of my favorite goons. From one goon to another goon to another goon. Hey, we gotta talk about being goons. Uh, but gotta engage the gooniverse. Yeah, oh God. I mean, the gooniverse. Let's leave Eric Powell at the side of things. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so I'm sitting down with Amanda and Jeffrey. How are you guys? Oh, doing great. 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 <laughs> we use the same adjective. Great. <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've been wanting to have you guys on for a while, uh, and now it's happening. It's true. It's finally happened. We made it work. Yay. With all of our crazy L.A. schedules. Yeah. Constantly going out to fancy lunches. It's true. And big shot meetings. Also true. Sometimes you just have to sit down with a buddy, record a podcast <laughs> in a bedroom. Yeah. Am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong. That's the core of what our... LA dream is supposed to be, right? 
I need to see as many bedrooms as possible. <laughs> That's right. right. The best way into a bedroom is a podcast. Yes. We've True. All yes. It's also the sexiest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the way, we're all in the nude. Yeah. So, so yeah. just an FYI for the listeners. I started in a tasteful kimono. <laughs> it was very tasteful, but <laughs> I'm glad you. you took it off. I took it off. Make everyone comfortable. Right. The rest of us had already gone full non-kimono. Yeah. This has got to be a reality show where you're nude podcasters. <laughs> It's they've never met each other before. It's a host and guests, and they all get together and they're nude, and then they have to see if the chemistry works. We could sell that to True TV. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to be buying a lot of things. Let's see, Barbara and Barrel. <laughs> oh, here we go. Uh, so I met you guys through The Devastator. Yes. And for those listening who do not know what that is or what it's become, uh, I just wanted you guys to give a little intro and what else you work on. Uh, so, yeah, The Devastator is a comedy publishing company. We're actually the only comedy publishing company? It's really? It's crazy. Yeah. Um, it's All probably because it's totally unprofitable. Some, <laughs> some, some, like, green visor guy has already deemed it, uh... <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah. Hey, buddy, my name's Green Visor Guy, and even I think this doesn't work. Right. <laughs> this is... Ding! Nope, numbers don't add up. Not solve it. I'm so sorry. Your business doesn't work. But we didn't meet that guy back in 2009. So we started this company and we started with an anthology series called The Devastator. Yes. And uh, so we had 13 uh, installments of that. Each one is a different theme. We'd bring together comedy and comics people, uh, folks from The Onion, The Daily Show, Adult Swim, Marvel, DC graphics, just anyone that we were like really keen on. Um, and then we sort of evolved into a publishing imprint. So uh, about two and a half years ago, we started publishing original and parody titles uh, like... Uh, like Gross Lumps, Tales to Irritate Your Spook Glands, <laughs> our uh, parody of Goosebumps featuring uh, short stories, all parodying specific Goosebumps books from the 90s. Yeah. Um, we also, uh, I wrote a, a series of zines called Wizards of Cockblock Forest. It's a real working role-playing game, uh, where everyone plays as a wizard and you have to cockblock each other with magic spells. <laughs> it makes me laugh every time. It's America's it's, game. It's one of our most popular things. And then, um, like, Oh, The Flesh You Will Eat, which came out last fall, was yeah. our first hardcover, and, like, everyone's really psyched about that. Yeah, by Mike um, Levine. He's a hilarious uh, writer for The Onion. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the parody is drawn by Jacob Volum, and it's really it's it's a yeah, hardcover, and it's a really funny look at uh, sort of the anti-medical culture. This like a gr- groups of people who are like, no, I will not. I refuse treatment. I refuse to to you vaccinate know, my kids. To vaccinate my kids. Yeah. Sort of parodies that to worldview through the lens of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and this year we're publishing twelve books this this year. One month. This year twice, but yeah, it's uh, it's because it's a lot of work, and we're <laughs> slowly grinding away at our sanity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I would say that probably, like all of the materials, probably geared towards people who would listen to this podcast. Hundred real oh, big yeah. old plug. <laughs> this podcast approved. Big old I made plug. a thumb at the microphone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're all thumbing at the microphone. You can't see it, but it's a beautiful or. <laughs> Orgy of thumbs up. While this is happening, uh, what got you guys into comics? 
Uh, do you have a background in reading comics? I'm assuming yes, but oh, yeah. I just wanted to start there. Absolutely. I think we both started we both with did. X-Men. Yes. Yeah, for me it was X-Men and Batman. Yes, for me it was basically just X-Men. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would read, yeah, I read every, pretty much every X title. I was the guy, I'm the reason why they made so many of them. <laughs> like you'd go to the comic book store and be like, there was an X-Factor, an X-Generation X. X marks the spot, <laughs> exaggeration, the all of, I read every one of them. Um, some are better than others. Yes. Exhausting the premise Exhausting. of X-Men. Yes. The, um, and, uh, and then I sort of branched out, I, I stopped reading comics for a while. Actually, the, the comics that I have always read and traditionally read are humor comics. Yeah. Um, and humor books too. So growing up, I had a very large collection of uh, I started with Garfield comics. I oh, yeah. loved Garfield as a Those kid. Were oh yeah, come on. Yes. Garfield he hates lasagna. He that hates we know. lasagna. He no, why did I say he hates lasagna? You That's were gonna, ridiculous. You were going to say Mondays. Oh, yeah, right. Right. He hates he Mondays. <laughs> I know. The Cadillac gang. That's my jam. Boy, it is been a long day. Um, <laughs> he hates Mondays. He loves lasagna. Yeah. But here's the thing. He's supposed to be lazy but in a lot of illustrations on t-shirts, he's like doing stuff like he's surfing or he's, you know. Right. He's a, got a more active lifestyle than I do for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. He's yes. had more occupations like than I think. high energy stuff. He'll, yeah. It'll be like, you know, the <laughs> Garfield represents the Construction Workers Union 5000. <laughs> it'll be like Garfield with a jackhammer and it'll be like, get me off this thing. But he's still doing it. He's That's still the thing. doing it. I mean, uh, anything to further the license. That's right. I mean, he's dedicated to his own license, you can tell. Oh, 100%. Yeah, Garfield yeah. runs his own company, right? I'm he does, yeah. Sure. When you go to, uh, was it Wyoming, Iowa? I think he it's has... Iowa. He's like, the, the Jim Davis compound's in the middle of like a corn maze in Iowa. It's a Iowa. compound. Yeah. So like, you're, you're, this is my understanding, is that you'll be just driving through corn. So this is a real thing. <laughs> and then this yeah. is a real thing. You'll All of a sudden, you'll get to like... Garfield Manor. It's like <laughs> orange gates. Orange gate orange really? striped <laughs> gates. Look, that may be an exaggeration, but apparently oh, there's you so got my much hopes up. Well, apparently his home is full of so much Garfield merchandise that like his family just thinks of Garfield as like an omnipresent like member of their household. Right. It was just like, oh yeah, well Garfield is, you know, is here. It's always here. It's like yeah. in the same way that many uh, religious households will have a lot of Jesus up, right. and like, and like Jesus feels like it's a part of their lives. So too, or a Kennedy, or a Kennedy, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, from from uh, Garfield, I started reading Bloom, a lot of Bloom County, yes. which I really love, mm -hmm. um, and just tons of humor books, every type of humor book, even by. I probably had a lot of books that were very embarrassing to me now. Oh, yeah. All the Dave Barry books that we both had. Dave Barry books. Oh, God. Dennis Miller books. Mm, I probably yeah. had Victoria Jackson's book if she had a book. <laughs> like, but that's how much I love uh, humor and then yeah. comic books. And, of course, uh, of course, I read a lot of X-Men, as we said. And, and, then, and then I sort of got into indie, indie comics and hip comics. Yeah, I kind of stopped reading comics from, like, what, maybe late. 
elementary school until about high school. Mm -hmm. Like, it was just, uh, comics aren't cool anymore. And this was also, like, in the late 90s period where everything was super aggressive and violent. It was, like, Attitude Era WWE, but also in comics. Yes. Just doing the same thing. Um, well, and so it totally turned me off for a while. And then I got back into it because of, like, Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison and right. stuff. We sort of missed the first way that, like, early 90s indie yeah, scene. Yeah, I had to catch up with that in college. Right, that's that's right. So there was, had we known, we probably would have stayed interested in comics for longer. But yeah. at that point, the indie scene, that, that wave of indies was sort of dying down. True. But there would be another wave of, like, cool indie stuff. And I think now is actually, like, the greatest era of indie comics. comics oh my god there's so maybe, much good stuff maybe maybe in comics in general but it's just yeah i mean the there's just the breadth of work that's out there is incredible yeah. it, you i mean you somebody the other day a publisher the other day was like where do i find talented artists and i'm like are you crazy <laughs> just go, go, just to go online Tumblr. go, go to online Tumblr and there, everything <laughs> is there it's yeah. insane the plethora of talent if you go to, we go to a lot of comic book conventions and you just go to an artist alley or if you go to an indie show like TCAP or something and you could just see a whole, just a room of a hundred people all incredibly talented putting out new and original work. It's insane. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've like met people who just like after two years of meeting them have like become like names and it's like it, things happen so fast now like you could just discover someone in artist alley and then suddenly they're like headlining a book at first, marvel first we publish them yeah <laughs> then they get then they get too famous for us then they get too famous and respected for us <laughs> <laughs> don't return our emails uh isn't that fun when that happens yeah. oh it's so sad we gave them an early shot for not a lot of money we're, we're like the rebound we're like in that zone of like we give people their confidence and then then it's like, all right, yeah, time to get out of here. Material and it's all quality and, <laughs> and you guys well, are nice you. people. Thank you. Uh, for directly working with you once, <laughs> uh, and we'll see how this interview goes. So, like, maybe by the end, I don't know. I'm gonna say that. Uh, <laughs> so, when did you guys get into Batman the animated series, or were you into it as a kid? Of course. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely watching it mostly because like it started like '92, right? Yeah, and so. I was seven and it said TVY7 on the ratings mm -hmm. and it was like, it felt so cool. Like I this made, it was, my it was, thing. yeah, it was like the perfect time. I was still totally not <laughs> mature enough to watch yeah. it. It was the most adult thing I've watched, I think. Do you remember the first episode you saw or like what was the first one that kind of like stood out? Oh man. Um, I think the first one that stood out to me then was Cat Scratch Fever because mm -hmm. I was just such a big Catwoman fan. Yeah, she was um, great. Adrian Barbeau a... in this is so good. Yes. Um, so yeah, that that was like, that was one of my favorite cartoons along with like Animaniacs and Tiny Toons and all that, all that good stuff. Um, and then I remember watching like the Batman Superman adventures too, like later on in the 90s. Do you remember that, Jeff? I certainly remember them. Yeah, like I don't remember them very vividly, <laughs> I, but I watched them. I remember them. The, it was, it was cool. Yeah. It wasn't Batman the Animated no, Series. It and wasn't. By the time that happened, that was sort of for me, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of too I was, old for this I'm now. I sort of feel a little old for, for this, yeah. you know. They, I felt like they aged it down. Cause when they made when with with Superman, you bring a lot of like optimism yes. and and I felt like that kind of 
that didn't play well with the the Batman uh the 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 Batman darkness. Yeah. You know. And so I, I felt like Superman sort of brought made Batman lighter. And they didn't it, I didn't feel like that I, I felt like it wasn't the the tug of war that you would expect of like here's the super dark show That's and true. here's the, the the super light optimistic show. I felt like it was like I'm Superman and I'm bringing Batman right. to Metropolis. Yeah. Oh, they for sure opened it up. It felt like yeah. you know, having like Tim Drake Robin and like having the Bat <laughs> family be a part of things. Right. It's not one psychotic man alone. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of becomes a little bit more kid friendly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I I was definitely into Batman the Animated Series. Now remember I, I read every X book. Right. So obviously the cartoon the superhero cartoon i was super into was the x-men the animated yeah that was my favorite too which was amazing it was i think it did a really good job of adapting the comics pretty much straight adaptation yep Mm -hmm. which is exactly what i wanted that was pretty much like it's like oh cool they're doing the legacy virus right oh man they're doing age of apocalypse yeah age of apocalypse is really good dark phoenix Dark Phoenix was, was pretty good. Yeah, they did it over like seven episodes yeah. or something like that. It was pretty crazy. I, yeah, I thought it would I thought it would be fewer or more. But it's perfect. E- but even at that time, as an X-Men fan, I recognized that Batman the Animated Series was the superior show. Right. And I even probably knew at that time it was like the best cartoon. The 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 Citizen Kane of Saturday morning cartoons. Like it is the it is the perfect gem it is the it is the one you know yeah um the animation was always on point which is something that's like always wrong in the in the x-men show yeah when you it's revisit true. those now it's, it's like, like oof, this theme song is cool but the animation <laughs> otherwise is a little rough yeah <laughs> but the stories were good the stories, stories were, were good, good. and oh, they yeah. had the and they had the one thing that they had right was the mix of the teammates yes they had the right group of characters it was the classic uh, you know, team of rivals. You know, they didn't get along with each other, but at the end of the day, they had to work together because yeah. there were greater forces out there. That's great. That provides great always conflict, well balanced, a lot of inter-team drama, oh, yeah. which I always yes. liked. Um, Batman wasn't about that. No, but Batman has had has the best rogues gallery, oh, way yeah. better than any other superhero out there. there's just no comparison it's all about the rogues gallery it's all about the rogues yeah. gallery especially if you're if you're following a superhero you're following like one person like it's he's like a guy she's she's a lady who fights crime you need people to for her to him or her to fight you know who are interesting who are interesting who are cool yeah. like a ventriloquist like a yes. ventriloquist <laughs> what dummy. a segue yeah. Ooh, well done uh, so let's talk the ventriloquist right so yeah. we're talking read my lips yes uh which is his first appearance in this cartoon uh, <laughs> it's like i think it's one of the most solid episodes across the board definitely does, does he come back i'm trying to remember yeah, other episodes it. with him so he comes back again in an episode called catwalk where he teams up with catwoman oh. but and it's actually it's a paul dini episode it's really good uh, and it turns out he's playing her and is you know real asshole as the ventriloquist is <laughs> and there is a later one when they re- redesigned it for batman superman that is unusually dark oh okay one of those i would actually revisit it if you get a chance because it like he's basically recovered (laughs) and then his i I won't spoil it but it seems like scarface has come back to life on his own 
Uh, that's right. It's like a very, it's, it's kind of like a mystery of like why is that happening, and right. it's it's like a very creepy story for that iteration of Batman. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I think Scarface is one of the most underrated of the Batman villains. Yeah, people don't think of him, but he's great. He the thing I like best about him. So there's a lot of you know it would be easy enough to write him as, well, he's an angry dummy, right? And the problem, his weakness is, he's a ventriloquist dummy. So, you know, you hit his owner and there he goes. And of course that happens. But the thing, his real true weakness is his paranoia. Like, it's a personality-based weakness. So it's really good writing. Yeah. Like, he has a real honest-to-goodness character flaw that plays out in a really interesting way that Batman uses to his advantage. Yes, he's exploiting it to play him against the other person who is the same person. Right. That's so great. Again, the episode, like, you could defeat him by throwing a batarang at at the ventriloquist's face and knocking him out. <laughs> done, done deal, you know? But he's like, you know what? I'm Batman, and I'm going to go the, the cool writing route. I'm going to go, <laughs> go the well-written route and... And, and play up this character flaw. It was just great. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Batman's a good psychologist. He is. And yes. a good yeah. ventriloquist. Yeah. Like and this and episode. That's yes. true. For my training with Zatara, the magician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Batman, I guess he could do any, have any skill, right? Well, he's mm-hmm. rich enough. He's rich enough to <laughs> yeah. acquire, to eventually learn any skill and it's plausible. Yeah. There's nothing he can't, like, if there was an episode where he had to fight a sewer monster... And he was like plumbing, and like it required him to be a, an expert plumber. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, it's you know. Alfred. In my training was Zatara the plumber. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like Alfred taught me to, <laughs> you know, how to be a plumber for fun one Sunday. It's like, yep, I can't argue with that logic. It seriously is Alfred's, like Alfred's weekly humbling exercises. Yeah. It's like, listen, you're a very rich boy. Let me teach you how to clean things. Right, but only five minutes a week. Because yeah. right. you're, yeah, you're too rich. You're too rich to humble for too long. We all know that. Uh, this is a, he's, I feel like Ventriloquist, even though he's like a, I guess he's a villain that was created in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, but like he feels like a classic Batman villain. And that's like he one does. of the coolest things is that a lot of those '80s villains feel so '80s or like the <laughs> '90s ones are like so much a product of their time. Like Bane is I was so just much... gonna say Bane. <laughs> I was just gonna say Bane. He's you super ripped. Jig. He's full. He's super ripped. He's full of tubes. <laughs> he that has a one Bane. word, one word dude. one word name. That is Bane. <laughs> There was it was there was a ton of them like like onslaught yeah oh onslaught you know <laughs> murder side <laughs> cyber <laughs> cyber like all the like they all look and like, AIM chat room <laughs> <laughs> pretty much like the X Men has a number of them uh, I mean they're not villains but like but like Cable is a good example yeah. of like what the 90s looks like. Yeah. Basically if Rob Liefeld drawn then <laughs> then then you know. Right. Spawn. Spawn. <laughs> oh yeah. You know there's just this t- it's just this type. It's just yeah. these jacked up rage machines. <laughs> yes. yes. And I feel like Ventriloquist is the opposite of that. It's like this is a goofy premise but right. it's psychologically messed up. <laughs> yes. I guess it's what much worse in the comics. I was doing a little research. I'm not super well versed in his origins. But I guess 
I don't know if you guys are. I'm not. Not at all. Uh, so he, the origin of Scarface in the comics, he appeared in Detective Comics 583 in 1988. Cool. Arnold Wesker, he's he's a bad ventriloquist in the comics. And so if you ever read him in the comics, they have like he he pronounces I think uh, D's as G's. You gummy. <laughs> Uh, I guess that's the project, like him being bad, but even if you are bad, I don't know how that translates. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, and I guess that was a fight between DC Comics and Bruce Tim or the, the creative team at the time. They were like, no, we want him to be a good ventriloquist. Uh, right. We just think he's just kind of messed up. But also there was like a weird supernatural element where like he was carved out of wood from a gallows outside of Gotham, you know, like right. And so like it <laughs> wasn't sort of, like, wood. like yeah, like he got. I'm okay. <laughs> I think they made the right call. Oh yeah, yeah. like yeah. we don't need bloodstained gallows wood. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, I, I mean, I understand gallows like. Wood. Well, I understand, like, okay, this is Batman comics in the late 80s. Like, right. So, right. Every th- if you want to get this published, you better make it as dark and creepy and gross as possible. Oh, he killed his cellmate, and then, like the, like, the dummy talks to him, and then he, like, you know, digs his way out of prison, and then that he creates Scarface out of, like, the, the knife that he killed his cellmate with. It's real crazy. Yeah. yeah. Again, that's yeah, good. As, yeah, it's not as good. <laughs> no, just, this is smarter. <laughs> I think it's more interesting, at least. Yeah. Yeah. The um, I like that this opens with the, the episode opens with a boxing match. I thought again, yeah. that's like really cool. Like, that's like a good noir specific, like a good like period yeah. specific. And it's so well directed. It's yeah. like it's so cool. Right, like looking. the boarding, like the close ups and like the use of shadow and the way like all the flash bulbs are going off yeah. as they're like kind of beating these guys up, which feels more brutal than a kid's cartoon should be. Right. Yeah. Even though it's just boxing. Yeah. yeah no, it, but it it's, it works. It it's feels totally like you're works. watching like a you're you're like a movie your dad would watch or something. Yeah. You're like, oh cool, this is like transgressive. <laughs> Ooh, they're flipping the programs and it's becoming flipping money. Like that transition <laughs> yeah. was like it's like all very well directed. Definitely. Agree, which I liked. Yeah. I was a fan of that. One uh, one thing, I'll, I'll point out a weird thing. Yeah. Uh, this is a stray <laughs> weird thing. Great. Um, so, Batman, he's at his crime computer. Mm-hmm. And he's <laughs> I watching... I love the crime computer, by the way. Loved, he loves <laughs> yeah. that crime computer. Yeah. By the way, when are we going to get that computer? Like, yeah, why like, don't we have that? Like, we should... Somebody should build that interface right for to overlay on your mac like you can load it and it's just it makes everything look like batman's crime computer if there was a toy because there were like all these toy laptop things in the 90s like if there was like a toy crime computer i would have bought that yeah 100 percent totally would have bought that (laughs) just like beep boop beep boop it would have like like eight functions it only enhances yeah (laughs) it just it just, it so it just comes it one blurry, blurry picture yeah. just becomes super high resolution. <laughs> and, but then you can't change to another picture. No. And it, it only, only just reverses. It just reverses. And then it just goes back to it being blurry. You're like, enhance it, enhance it, enhance it, enhance it, enhance um, So he's at his computer and he's watching the footage of the robbers uh, after the crime, after the, right. the, the, the robbery of the, of the boxing match. And... He's he's watching the footage and he's like, oh, they're wearing masks. They're wearing ski masks and gloves. Very clever. <laughs> like like that. Like like Batman. A I guy can't who, see their faces. I can't see their faces. That's genius. 
Like, I, Batman, you've probably seen this before. I don't know anybody who covers their face with some sort of mask <laughs> to avoid being yeah, found out. Being identified. Never yeah. seen it's that genius, genius tactic. Maybe I'll start to... Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Maybe it was in one of his humbling exercises. Just game always recognizes game, no matter That's how many true. times he's seen it. This yeah. is very true. We missed the scene where he compliments the burglars for a good 20 minutes on their masks. <laughs> they cut that out. <laughs> And on that same, uh, in that same scene, when the the sleeve rips open and you see oh, the, the tattoo, tattoo. Yeah. I also love that he has a tattoo database. Yeah. Great. It's it's really funny. I'm just imagining like all of these like the people who like get drunk and they get like a weird tattoo, <laughs> but like, then now they've ended up in Batman's <laughs> database <laughs> somehow. It's like one time oh. he accidentally takes one of them down, <laughs> punching some drunk criminal. girl in the face. <laughs> yeah. I just got a mermaid because I thought it was cool. You are the Riddler. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the Riddler with a mermaid tattoo. So many tramp stamps. <laughs> like, That's a separate tramp, folder for the dad. Tra- yeah. Tramp stamps with Hebrew names. All right. Just like it's gonna come. It's gonna come in handy one of these days, Alfred. Those, You'll see. All these tattoos are important. <laughs> all these '90s Chinese characters tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> There's the henna tattoo database. Oh, yeah. oh boy. Much more difficult for him to track. Uh, yeah, he does have. It does feel like uh, the best version of like a six. You know, Adam Westy Batman thing. It's like, yeah. in some ways, it's taking it more seriously. But now that we look back on it, it's like, nope, it was just the same thing as the utility belt that had everything in it. Right. right. But that's. But again, you've you've created a super rich character who has access to anything. So I guess I guess anything is possible. You right. know, within the laws of physics, you can actually. That's one thing I will point out that I, I really liked about this episode. And you're just, just talking about it having like a kind of a noiry feel. Yeah. Not only does it feel uh, feel very detective e because he does actually does a lot of detective work or some detective work, <laughs> but also uh, there's a lack of powers in this episode. Right. Like there's no freeze gray guns. There's yeah. no you know. There's no, like, crazy, you know, contraptions or whatever. I mean, he's obviously being a ventriloquist is is a quirky thing, but it's all... It's not, like, science fiction-y. It's not science fiction-y, it's yeah. Horror, it's horror, anything. It's, it's horror, like yeah. the horror of discovering Scarface is more important than a, a gimmicky kind of, like, gun. That's right. Right, yeah, it's a psychological thriller. That's, yes. Like, that's crazy. And it was TVY7. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that look, like, when Batman first sees, like, realizes what he's like, ooh, like, it's, like, very exaggerated. Oh, it's yeah. great. Oh, it's, really it. fun. it's really funny. I should make it my desktop photo. Yeah, whenever Batman is aghast, yeah. it's very funny. Because it rarely happens. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think like what are some moments where where Batman is a guest thinking about the death of his parents <laughs> <laughs> discovering that a dummy can exist a because dummy could be a, a killer and yes. a particularly uh, crude tramp stamp in the <laughs> yeah, point. those are the top three yep. uh, top three moments that Batman is most surprised <laughs> BuzzFeed's top three <laughs> Jim Gordon's tramp stamp <laughs> Oh god, I wish he had one. Uh, yeah, I feel like it is. It's played so. I, I love that it's like just about goons and yeah. this weird sad man. Yeah, can we, oh, can yeah, we, goons, Rhino. Let's talk about Rhino. <laughs> Got maybe it. the best goon. Yes, and he shows up in all the Scarface episodes and is 
plays a very large role in the that one I was just telling you Ooh, about. Oh, good. Uh, good, That's... because he's definitely a breakout character. Yeah. <laughs> he's definitely a breakout goon. He's a memorable goon. Yeah. Rhino. He's not just a run-of-the-mill goon. That guy, I would like to see the anatomy of that guy. <laughs> because... His shoulders are like the length of a car. <laughs> yeah, he's... yeah, he's not presented... It's Okay, so it's not like Bane, where we're like, the reason Bane is like this is because of these tubes and this, <laughs> and this fluid, this like mystery crazy fluid. Rhino is just presumably born like that. With gigantism. <laughs> He's genetically yeah. predisposed to be like two gorillas wide up top yeah. and they have small feet. <laughs> <laughs> There's, he would dwarf every WWE wrestler. Like yes. if he existed in real life... He would be like two big shows. It'd be like, like three... two big shows tall and like two great colleagues wide. Right. <laughs> I love that you're using wrestlers as a form of measurement. <laughs> for a rhino. Yeah, for a rhino. Uh, and not a rhino. Yes. And he's not the rhino. I bet he's, I wonder if he's bigger than the rhino from the spy from Spider-Man universe. Let's get a great scale. Yeah. Let's get a scale sheet. <laughs> Put them side by side. Oh, this is important work. Yeah. It's somebody else should do. <laughs> well, here's a fun a little fun fact about the guy who voiced Rhino, Earl Bowen. Earl Bowen. Earl Bowen, Bowen who also he played a lot of other he played Perry White in the Superman cartoon, which Good. is a fun thing, and like a lot of other Batman characters. But he's also in the Terminator series as the psychologist. Uh, you know, the psychologist that, like, holds Sarah Connor, it, like, keeps oh, her yeah. locked up. He's, oh, like, in, yeah, like, the, the main institution. Crazy. Yes. What is it with 80s? Dr. Peter Silberman, that's what he is. Silberman. Silberman, of course. <laughs> All 80s movies put their characters into insane asylums. I wonder if it was a trope point. of, like, psychology being, like, you know, like, vilified in a way. Yeah. Or, I, I don't know. It was like, maybe that was the influence, the early influence of Scientology on, <laughs> uh, like, movie producers. Like, well, maybe a man. bunch of them, a bunch of, like, 80s movie producers were Scientologists, and they'd get these scripts back and would be like, you know what would be interesting? What if the psychologist put the Ghostbusters into uh, an insane asylum? Yeah. Even, though, I mean, even, even though everybody living has seen ghosts, <laughs> and should not be, should have been not be surprised by more ghosts. I mean, you got a lot of coked up producers yeah. who probably don't like their therapists. Yeah, they have so. some rehab days that they did not like. Yes. Yeah, it's like the therapist is the villain. They're trapping me in a box where I can't have cocaine. Truly in like Terminator 2, I remember in in that film, it's so nightmarish. Like her escape from that like mental institution yeah. or whatever it, whatever it was is so intense. Oh yeah, it's one of the most brutal. And like the there's like an ex, the extended cut version of it is like so much more of that. Oh no, it's very sad. Oh, boy. Hamilton's oh, boy. just jacked and sweaty and like crazy. <laughs> somebody, ah, this is bugging me now. There's somebody else who's really interesting in that. Oh, Oh, no. He's not interesting at all. Never mind. <laughs> I, I had to do... I was thinking, like, there's somebody famous who's in that scene, and it's just... I think it's just a bodybuilder. It's just a famous bodybuilder who's, like, also part of that sequence. He, right. he, and I I may be confusing this whole... I may be really confused right now, <laughs> but I had to do an article for a website about, like, top ten, like, bodybuilders turned movie heroes and i'm pretty sure that there's a bodybuilder 
who is in that movie, who is like part like part of that scene, who is part of that scene, that that insane asylum scene. His name is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Man, yeah. <laughs> no, another one. There's another one. He's like the T one. Some he's like one of the other T's. Oh, okay. He's like, but it doesn't. Ooh, he come- someone can tweet at. You. Tweet at right. I think podcast yeah. or at get devastated. Yeah, they could okay. do that. Okay. But I have a feeling that everything that people are going to tweet is you are very <laughs> wrong and incorrect. Honestly, you people are, are generally pretty nice. Now that I've said that, I've opened the floodgates for me. <laughs> awesome. But they're usually like, hey, by the way, it was this person. Great show. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, very friendly fans. Aww. I should go you back. You guys are and, sweeties. Right? Love Aww. these guys. Love them. What do you the call camera. them again? Thumbs up. What are, what are they called? What are the fans called? We ha- you know what? We haven't settled on a name. Oh. Maybe now's the day when we, or night, oh. we're recording at night. Yes. <laughs> Let's By the see. end of this podcast, there will be a fan name. All yeah, right. yeah, that's, that's my the goal. Monsters taken. <laughs> uh, let's see. Isn't that like the Lady Gaga oh, fan oh, name? Yeah, oh, like monsters or some shit. Batmaniacs. Uh, yeah, Batmaniacs is good. <laughs> the uh, but of course you want it to include it's you want it to be about the animated series. Right. Batman the Animaniacs series. <laughs> I like, Bat- I like <laughs> Batman the Animaniacs. <laughs> My little Batman the Animaniacs. Yeah, yeah, Batman. By the way, quick sidebar on that. I will say earlier in the podcast, I said that uh, Batman the Animated Series is the Citizen Kane of of, uh, Saturday Morning Cartoons. I will stand by that. Yes. However, uh, Pinky and the Brain should be, it's got to be right up there. As one of the great, it's car- very similar. Great Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. It's the duck soup of yes, <laughs> Saturday morning. Right. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yes, that's ex- and that's a good analogy because it was probably way too adult for uh, for its time as well. Yeah, you know, we we watched it recently and great. it was just like still amazing. Holds up, definitely yeah. holds up. Also, great theme song. Oh they yeah, really, true. they had it going great in the nineties. They like, did. Really theme did. Songs. Oh man, great theme songs. Great. I, you know, just great writing, really like writer driven cartoons, yeah. I think is the is the great thing about it. It's what's, what's awesome about the 90s. Oh, yeah. In turn, and it, it's a direct reaction to the 80s, which is so like product focused, right. you know, where everything was about the toy company dictating, you know, the, Okay, here you're gonna kill all the transformers now, so we can have new transformers. Here are all the new product designs. Redraw everything. You, yeah, you know and that's also what. Like yeah. Real cheap, cheap animation. Yes. Like Bruce Tim came from that world of like he was working on I think Masters of the Universe or whatever, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and he was just like you know hating He Man. <laughs> I, yeah. I do not blame him. <laughs> yeah. uh, and sitting there and like having to like redraw things and like reuse like the same shape, like the same poses, but for like different emotions. Uh, and it's like so right. much reusing of. The and, the, and there's definitely an art to it. Like if you watch a lot of the the '90s Cartoon Network shows, it's true. There's the, a lot of good like. Yeah, like the Tartakovsky stuff. Very yeah. good oh, 90s, limited yes. animation. Yeah. Very good limited animation. So it's very artful. You know, if you watch like Samurai Jack, like it's not that like Samurai Jack is quote unquote well animated in the Disney sense of like here's like a lush, beautiful 2D animation. No, it's not yeah. fluid, but it's like right. taking like cartoon modern, like, you know, fifties, sixties kind of animation. Yeah. It's like they're popping to poses in the right way. And popping to poses. Popping to poses. Welcome popping back to popping to poses. Popping to poses. <laughs> um but yeah. 
Scarface. Oh yeah, Scarface. Scarface. Oh yeah, that. Great transition. We love that guy. (laughs) Remembering the reason we're here. Great segue. I think he's a great character. I think he's a he's a he's a really fun character. I just I love how whipped the goons are. Like they're like he's a genius. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Whatever you say, boss. (laughs) They're so they're so afraid of him. Yeah, which is amazing. And they're not. There isn't even like a scene. Where one of the goons is giving laughing him at him or giving him lip and then is like thrown into a shredder or something, thrown off a cliff or something. No, you're We're- immediately told everyone should be afraid of Scarface. <laughs> right. Which is simultaneously very silly and very scary. Like, yeah. I remember like Alan Burnett, who talks, you know, he's one of the producers and like head writer essentially, I think story editor on the series at this point was talking about it in some DVD, DVD commentary. Uh, and he Ooh. was saying, like, what he loved about it is that, like, he's, it's, like, funny and scary at the same time. And it's, like, mm-hmm. a good way. There's something, they toe that line where it's, like, nobody takes this seriously. <laughs> but also, like, everybody being afraid of him immediately yeah. is a signal. It's right. super scary. You're like, oh, God. <laughs> also, he's puppet. a doll factory. He's in a doll arm factory. Oh, my God. Oh, with all, oh the great. mannequins and the stuff. Mannequins, the sharpened yes. mannequins. That's Although, creepier than anything else. That is, I would say, that is creepy imagery. Though it did, the sh- the shot of like the sharpened mannequin. Oh, as arms, like the pit that you would fall into. As the pit, I don't know. You were like, that's not deadly enough. I, yeah. Oh, I always thought it was scarier as a kid. I, I, I could think like imagine the impact more. I right. think it's super scary. I think it's super weird. Yeah. But I don't necessarily believe that it's like that Batman couldn't get out of that situation. It's not a vat of acid. Right. It's like somehow like I guess I always imagined like Batman would land like in in between the 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 arms right. you know like in such like there was always because it felt like there was definitely like space you know within the spice there was the a lot spice. of d- a lot of darkness so it's like you don't really know what's so, under yeah so could he like you know maneuver he around. also has a lot of armor on right yes so this Batman uh, no he's just wearing spandex <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah this isn't we don't well I guess in the I, I don't think so I think it's a no armory Batman yeah that's a good costume. point you know I see the cape so much in this episode he's that's like true. encloaked so often um, but yeah you're right there isn't there's not a lot of Kevlar. <laughs> nope, I feel like that's a more of a Batman Beginsy, yeah, right. like our Nolan versus Batman kind of like it's like post militarized, mil- yeah, militarized Batman. Which yeah. I remember loving when it came out, and I'm kind of done with it now. I'm yeah, like, I don't need to explain everything. I don't need an explanation. I kind <laughs> right. of just want to have fun. <laughs> yeah, I know it's nice too. to have fun when watching superheroes. I think that's always what why I was more inclined to like Marvel than DC. Yeah, they had fun. Because it seems like it seemed like the characters were more fun. It was less taking it took itself less seriously. Uh the the DC superheroes are like gods. They're yes. like they're like the It's Mount Olympus. The yeah. Mount Olympus. It's the story of, you know, Zeus smiting the Harry's very the, you clear know. binaries of like light and dark and right. you know, but like in Marvel, it's a lot of goofy stuff. Yeah, like character based stuff. Yeah, and like Marvel, there's characters, there's characters like you know Peter Parker, who's you know a wisecracking kid just trying to make a living, and you know right. it's, it's a photographer, and you know oh no, I, people hate me, people love me, I'm a teenager, I got acne, what am I gonna do? You know, oh as a yeah. kid, it's like I have acne. 
I can relate to Spider-Man. I've got that friend who has one arm is now a lizard. <laughs> professor. I feel like I also, I was like, it was Batman and Spider-Man were like my two big superheroes as a kid. And yeah. it fulfilled two very separate <laughs> needs. Yep. Needs, for sure. Yeah, Batman yeah. is like a larger mythological... Just like cool factor. Yeah, right. it's like, oh, this is my aspirational hero. Like, someday I'll be rich and no Krav Maga. Yeah. And then, you know, Spider Man's just who you are. Yeah, <laughs> Spider Man's like, he's funny. I want to be that. Yeah, <laughs> cool guy. Uh, I was so thankful. Say what you will about those Andrew Garfield Spider Man movies. I liked that he was funny. Oh, that's yeah, good. Yeah, funny is good. Did you see those? No. Uh, the first I've one, seen clips. I don't know. I think I, I, they get a lot of flack. I didn't see the second one. I uh, heard that was pretty awful, but what I never liked about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies was that like Tobey Maguire never felt like he was funny. No, yeah, he, did, he, he didn't. Was and <laughs> he it, took like, himself he very seriously. I yeah. I always I <laughs> love a shirt of from Spider-Man Three. Crying Spider-Man. Crying Spider-Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think right. a crying Spider-Man shirt would be really funny to own. <laughs> it's like it's a drawing of him, just Tobey Maguire. We he spends like half the movie weeping. Yeah, and it's like I don't want. Or in this. the eyeliner, yeah. doing weird stuff. It's like I don't want this. Nobody wanted it. I think that well, the problem with Spider-Man Three, of course, is that was another studio fight where uh, right. it's like there was the it's like we got to do the lizard. No, we've got to do the Venoms. You know, we got to do them both now because each, the studio wants one thing and Sam Raimi wants another thing, and it's yeah. like yeah. Uh, <laughs> bummer because Sandman was fun in that movie. Yeah, Sandman. Yeah, oh yeah, that's, that's what I that's what I meant. I think they wanted to do the lizard for a while. Lizard right. is in that amazing Spider-Man. Movie. Right, yeah, right. yeah. That Sandman. Yeah, they wanted to do Sandman and I th- yeah, I think it was Raimi wanted to do Sandman. I think the studio wanted to do Venom. Venom and then they yeah. jammed them both in and, yeah. and they made nobody happy. Yeah. No. I don't like that. Too I many think, villains is too bad. Too many villains just one I why do we always why is there always this instinct to have multiple villains? One villain. One villain. That's all I need. I just need one. I love a great, like a Sinister Six two-parter in a show or a comic. Right. Like I like when they sure. show up. I'd love to see it built to in like a Marvel Universe sort of way, but yeah. I don't need it in the second movie or like... Well, well right. I like a... T- I, I, here's my thing. I think there's an uncanny valley of villains. <laughs> it's like, I either want like one villain or I want like six a, villains. Yes, there's no <laughs> yeah. in between. Right, right. right. But I don't. But the thing is that I don't want like each of those six villains to have their like own subplot. Like right. it's just too much. I just want the. It's here. You have two stories. One story is the hero has to fight this villain or team of villains. The other story is his his or her persona has to you know regular day persona has to fight some kind of weird thing in their everyday lives. Right. You know. Whether it's like Bruce Wayne has to fight corruption in Gotham, or you know the Wolverine has to find Yuriko, or <laughs> Yuriko, you know, um, just at, like and that's it, and then I'm good. And the movie should be two hours, an hour and a half to two hours long, and that's and and I'm good. I You're don't never need... gonna get a two-hour movie ever again. I know. <laughs> I know. They're either forever long or not. <laughs> yeah. Right? Much short. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we barely cobbled together 80 minutes 
or this movie is three hours long. No, they <laughs> edited it. Yeah, that's... Ugh. Uh, <laughs> oh. I love editing. <laughs> I'm now great. consoling Jeffrey. Thank you. Very yes. bummed about editing. <laughs> I know. It's the most compassionate version of a thumbs up I've ever seen. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, let's see. Is was there anything else that you guys wanted to chat about in terms of the episode? You had some notes. Yeah, you I had did. some cool I notes. See, I want let's you see. to to let's clear uh, this notes docket. Cool, great. George Zunza, the guy who yeah. plays uh, Scarface. We already talked about that. Oh, you know what? I conflated things. He's the guy who plays Perry White in Superman. Oh, Earl Bowen is the guy who plays Rhino, and he also is the guy in Terminator. Okay, Listen, here's the good news. Excuse we me. We can edit out all our mistakes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It just means me me having to do it. <laughs> I Listen, I I hear that. I I, uh, I have to edit my podcast, too. Hey, what's the name of that podcast? Oh, it's called Two Packs a Week. <laughs> Perfect plug. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it'll be written out anyway. <laughs> it's uh, it's on the Meltdown Podcast Network. Meltdown Comics is the, the store where... Uh, they record all the Nerdist shows, yeah. and they've got their own network now. It's super cool. And uh, on the show, uh, I open up packs of weird retro trading cards with comedians. So we've opened up... What a fun idea. Nobody has done it? Yeah, it's which like... is weird. You yeah. got me. Yeah, I'm shrugging it's... right now. <laughs> it gives you a topic immediately. Yep, yes. you're like, oh, we should talk about this card. Oh, we should talk about this card. And, yeah, it's been uh, really fun so far. Oh, thank you. The uh, yeah, we I did an episode. <laughs> yes, that's right. You we did a very one. special Valentine's Day episode. Aww. And uh, someone else in this room might be. There's a cat. Some, someone else <laughs> in this. My cat Fozzie just ran from under the bed and thought that he could escape the room that is locked right now. I was gonna say somebody else in this room also might be appearing on the podcast soon, Ooh. and I'm referring to Fozzie the cat. <laughs> <laughs> But we've opened up uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial cards, Yo! MTV Raps cards, Ms. Pac-Man cards. Yo! MTV Raps cards. They're, they're great. Yeah, they're, they're really fun. Yeah, they're yeah. fun. We got, uh, you can get a Ted Demi, the producer. <laughs> you can get an instant, there's an instant win card in there. There's a scratch and win card. And in one episode, an episode that was uh, just came out, we uh, scratched off an instant win card. If you're watching, if you're listening now, <laughs> you're going to have to go. And listen to the episode to find out whether, uh, whether my guest you... Mike Levine and I won a trip, an all-expense-paid trip to the studio to see a Yo! MTV rap special. In 1993. 1993. <laughs> oh, time machine not included. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I can't wait for Fozzie to be a part of that. It's going to be great. He's going to be such a cute episode. Oh. Adorable. We're going to open up Garfield cards. We're gonna wow, open... Garfield to Garfield. Garfield to yeah. Garfield. G to G. Also a good podcast. Also a great podcast. Ooh. What if it's 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 two guys named Garfield? So first you got to find those two guys, right. Andrew Garfield. Oh, and President <laughs> Garfield, the ghost of President Garfield, and it's a gar- and it's all about Garfield. They're talking all it's about just a, just a big Garf Garf chat. Garf yeah. chat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, I would listen. <laughs> I would definitely listen to that podcast. Yeah. That sounds like a great show. <laughs> oh, Let me see what else I have. Oh, I yeah, don't yeah. Think I have anything that I just love the score, the jazzy score of this oh, episode. Good score. Again, another another building block in the highlighting of of uh, in the in the uh, another uh, the aesthetic, the noir yes. aesthetic. It definitely captures helps capture the noir you need aesthetic, the, right the music. jazz. Yeah. Yeah. 
I I don't even know. I, I have like just weird scra- scrawled. I said shadowed thuggery. Yeah, <laughs> shadowed we covered thuggery. that. Yeah, yeah. Lots, lots of good goonage. Yeah, go- good goonage. <laughs> shadowed thuggery. Love that it's a heightened gangland tale. Yeah, we covered this. I just I love that he's a horrific personality. He doesn't like yeah. break the reality. He's yeah. He's just genuinely a flawed and interesting character. Yeah. I would go. T- I'm gonna go on the record of saying. That Scarface is a much more interesting character than any of Jeff Dunham's puppets. <laughs> Whoa. I know, I know. Controversial opinion. We got a lot but of they are, heads. But they are a <laughs> lot more. But they are a lot more one-dimensional than Scarface is. That's Scarface true. is multi-layered and and seems he has multitudes. There's depth. Yeah. To, there's definitely depth coming out of that puppet. <laughs> True. Yeah. He's creepy as hell. He's he gets yeah. killed every episode. Uh, yeah. I feel like that's also an excuse for them to just like tear him to shreds on a kid's like, yeah. well, right. puppet. He's a robot bullets. or a puppet, we can get away with it. Riddled with bullets. <laughs> I like that he's limited to like how long it takes him to build a new scar face. Like yes. he can't do it again. Until he builds another scar face. Well, he was in prison and it seemed like he had just finished a face. It's like, how long is it going to take the, to do the rest of it? Also, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, this, is, this, is this, this is one thing that I just thought was really funny. That they would allow him to do woodworking oh, yeah, like, at the when, prison. What prisons let you do woodworking? Well, okay, A. What prisons, prisons let, you, let their prisoners be around power uh, tools? Power tools, <laughs> you know. Seems like a recipe Even for disaster. Even tools, like little metal picks and stuff. But also, like, okay, this is this is our, it's Gotham Asylum. This is the Arkham Asylum, right? So they're they understand that all of these criminals have like pretty specific, like dangerous issues. Yeah, right? psychiatric problems. Psychiatric problems. So do you let the guy who's issue is that he creates killer ventriloquist dummies to, <laughs> to like make more dummies. to make another ventriloquist dummy in jail is revolving door i know yeah. this broken system man arkham is the worst it's the worst <laughs> asylum Honestly, truly i mean i know it's corrupt half the time yeah uh yeah they're horrible what? of course what? batman has to be there that's a great episode yeah. the recidivism of scarface yeah <laughs> it's endless do you remember when they took o- when the inmates took over the asylum? Trial. That's a trial. That's yeah. a, have you have you covered trial? We have not yet. That uh, oh, that'll for be Mr. good. Mr. Mike Carlson. Oh, that's nice. Oh, good. Well, that's that'll Friend be of the show. Mike Carlson. Yeah, he's a good guy. Well, that's Hashtag a, Botanicus, oh, I believe, is his thing. <laughs> that's a great episode. Yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. And they're so bad at prosecuting Batman. <laughs> I mean, the Joker's the judge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Joker's like, you know, he's actually he's actually doing a pretty good job. Before the Joker, he's <laughs> doing a decent job. Yeah, yeah. I know. That's, that's, he was pretty uh, pretty even-handed. Uh, we'll leave analysis yes. to... To, uh, to on, Mike there. To, to Mike on, to on that one. Yes, As he we'll never def- has been called. <laughs> by me, at least. MC Scat Cat. Yeah, MC Scat Cat, by the way. Was he the orig- was he the voice of MC Scat Cat? Mike Carlson? Yeah, was yes, that his claim was. to fame? Yeah, I thought oh. so. I thought so. Check yeah. him out at Fat Carlson or at MC Scat Cat. Yeah. <laughs> Does MC Scat Cat have a Twitter account? Some asshole has an MC Scat Cat. No. I don't want a joke one. I want a real I one. Know. I know. We all do. Atlantic Records to maintain it. <laughs> we all wish hard enough. <laughs> Maybe. We pray to Twitter. <laughs> This is going to fix Twitter. Everybody's oh, talking about the, this, the end of Twitter. Twitter, what the Twitter is having problems. 
What's going to fix Twitter is an MC Scat Cat account. That... An official MC Scat Cat account. A verified <laughs> MC Scat Cat account. Verified immediately before <laughs> yeah. it has any followers. <laughs> it right. will unite everyone. It's going to unite the internet. Well, are there any parting thoughts that you have before we wrap up? Ooh. Um, I just love Scarface. Now I'm going to watch all the other Scarface episodes. They're good ones. Yeah. I just want to thank you dummies for listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you knuckleheads. You wood nicks. You beast. You say wood nicks? Is that what you call this? I don't know. I was trying to think of other. It's like no good nicks. Yeah. No, no good nicks. Yeah, no wood nicks. I think that's what that's I was a, going that's for. That's another slang term you know, from the 50s. You hollow heads. <laughs> Something sounds very offensive about that one. Hollow heads? Hollow head, yes. Yeah, that sounds it's, problematic somehow. Yeah. I don't Ooh, know. Well, I guess we'll have to let the internet decide <laughs> in what way that's offensive. Let's put to it what into group. Urban Dictionary and see what happens. Oh, hollow God, heads. I'm afraid. Uh, well, thanks, guys. Well, thank you. Thank this was you. a pleasure. We did it. We did Thumbs it. Thumbs up and the mic. Today's guest, Joe R. Lansdale. Joe R. Lansdale is one of those guys who just does everything I like, and he lived up to his legend, so to speak. I don't know what legend I had in mind, but boy was he cool. He wrote a handful of Batman episodes, including this one, Read My Lips, as well as Perchance to Dream, Showdown, and Critters. He's a writer of short stories, comics, and the stuff you watch on the big and small screens alike. You might know the film based on his short story called Bubba Hotep. That was my introduction to Lansdale. Or his currently on the air, or at least as of tomorrow when you're hearing this, Sundance Channel TV series Happen Leonard, also based on his work. I love chatting with Joe, and I think you'll love hearing what he has to say. He's a smart guy with little pretense and a lot of great ideas and insight. So let's get to it. It's going very well. Very good. So you are traveling to Los Angeles right now. You're in Los Angeles. Well, actually, my daughter's moving out here or has moved out here. So we drove and I'm flying back uh, Wednesday. So uh, we went through the, the Grand Canyon and all that sort of stuff. We actually didn't drive through the canyon itself, but we drove around it. Yeah, next time just go careening <laughs> yeah, off and see yeah. what happens. And we went, you know, we took our time going across. So we've got her moved in and she's got career things going here. And I had some business meetings, so I spent an extra week and... So that's why we're here. Nice. Well, thanks for popping by. I know we tried Glad to do to this do a while ago. Like, I know. I think I was trying to catch up with you in Austin. Yeah, I was I, doing a comedy festival out there, and I was like, wait, right. I got to seek out Joe Lansdale. Yeah, and <laughs> it just did down. not hit the right time, I think. I no, it was like two days. Yeah. I was like, here, are you free these two days? And you're like, I'm a human being. I have a schedule. Yeah, I have a schedule. No, I wasn't. I'm free. Uh, so I'm glad that this worked out. Yeah. I wanted to talk about your career and how you got into writing and okay. what, what your influences are. Well, I mean, uh, I, to give you the um, Cliff Notes version, yeah. uh, I grew up in East Texas and uh, comic books were my first real interest. Now, my father couldn't read or write. My mother had 11th grade education. She was a great reader, though. They both encouraged me to read. And so anytime they had a dime, I bought a comic book. Now, that's what they cost was a dime in the mm. 1950s and early 60s. I think they finally went up to 12 cents, 15 cents. And 
and then grew from there. But I bought comic books, and I read all kinds of comic books, but I was especially attracted to DC Comics. And then later on, when Marvel came along, I read Marvel, and I, I read some of the smaller company things, Charlton and whatever. So I read comic books uh, religiously up until I was about 16, and then it was more sporadic. Mm-hmm. But comic books were my first love. They led me to reading books. They led, read me to, led me to being interested in short stories and things like that. And uh, that in itself gradually led to me wanting to tell the stories myself. And I tried to write comics and make my own comics and draw. And the problem was I had no ability to draw. I'm but, in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, but I could write. And I found that I could write the stories. And then I found that's what I really wanted to do anyway was the stories. And the more I did that and I got interested in films and books and it all just sort of fed into it. And in the 1990s, um, DC came to me and actually asked if I wanted to write comics because I had written a Batman short story or two and a, and a novel and I think a children's book by that point. Uh, and they said, well, you know, we, you want to write comics? And I was working with Mark Nelson. I did Blood and Shadows and then mm-hmm. I did uh, the Jonah Hex things I did with Tim Truman. And, um, you know, it went from there and that, that led me to Batman the Animated Series. They talked to me about it. I had a friend who was working there as well. Who was the friend? Uh, uh, Bob Wayne. Uh, he just retired. Uh, I think he may, I don't know if he's actually out of there or not, but he's been there. He was there for years. And uh, Bob Wayne uh, asked me to come in and see something when I was in New York, and he showed me this opening for Batman the Animated Series. It was just the opening, you know, that, that the music and the, the little... Uh, I guess teaser. Yeah, it was the, like the rooftop yeah, fight that they sold yeah, it yeah. on. And I thought, wow, that's cool. And he said, well, would you like to write for something? I said, I would. And he, so he threw my name in the pile and it stuck. And they called me and said, you want to write for this? Well, yeah. And I mean, you wrote some of the best episodes. And well, thank you. I, I would say that if you weren't in the room. I, I'm, so. I appreciate <laughs> it. And you know, I would have written more if I'd had time. And I honestly was uh, in some ways lucky to write those because I was writing novels and screenplays and comics and uh, uh, my wife and I were raising kids, and you know, so uh, I was doing pretty well. But I, I just knew I had to do it because I wanted to do it so bad, and I would love to have done more. I mean, I was approached once for the Justice League when it uh, later on when it became Justice League Unlimited. I didn't have time. Also, prior to that, there was the Batman Beyond. Yeah, was, I was, that was mentioned to me, and I would love to have worked on all those. But there's just you know, I, I just said, you know, I just don't have time to even Only so many story. projects yeah, you can do only at so time. many, right. So I want to back up a little bit just because sure. you, you rattled off so much interesting stuff. Well, <laughs> uh, so like DC, why were you drawn to DC uh, over Marvel in the beginning at least? Well, I, DC, there was no Marvel ah. when, when I was uh, reading DC. Okay, so that uh, answers I that. I think they were, were they timely comics perhaps? Uh, I'm not sure. But I don't, I, I cannot honestly say I ever saw a, 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 a pre-Marvel comic that I remember, but I remember uh, reading DC, but there were other comics uh, too I was reading sporadically, but DC, I was drawn to it, I think by like a lot of children, and again, there was no Marvel to compete with it, but because Julie Swartz, who I came to know, was the editor there, and Mm -hmm. he had revived a lot of the old, uh, uh, you know, comics like uh, The Flash and uh, uh, Green Lantern and so on and so on, and he had made them more scientific because after the 1940s when the 
uh, the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, sure. everybody was interested in the power of not only that bomb, but the power of science. And we became very science-oriented because prior to that, a lot of the uh, uh, superheroes seemed to have gained their powers through magic. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, Julie and, and a number of writers, too, Gardner Fox and a number of others, begin to think of them as science-fictional. And uh, that's what happened. It grew. The idea of magic being the source kind of was eliminated. And you, you got these characters that were, had the superpowers that were related to the century in which I was I was living, or at least that part of the century. Mm-hmm. It was very exciting. Also, I was out in East Texas, in the wilds of East Texas, and there were not that many things to interest someone like me who was interested in that kind of thing because there were other kids who read comics, but there weren't kids that had the same passion for story. I mean, I always seemed like I, as soon as I, I, I can, earliest I can remember, I wanted to tell stories. Hmm. Earliest. So, uh, and then, by, by the way, just to add about Marvel and make sure I didn't not dodge your question, I, Marvel came along in the 60s. That's when it developed. And the Marvel comics were a little bit more sophisticated than the DC comics had been because they were mainly, you know, the guy saves people from getting run over by a car. He mm-hmm. stops the bad guys from robbing a bank. Uh, they were very uh, perfect kind of people. They were always do the right thing, which, you know, that's a good you know, motto for sure. But when uh, Marvel came along, you had like Spider-Man and people like that. They had problems, and they had the problems that teenagers had. And a lot of us were hitting our teens at a right right about that time, and so they were very very appealing. And I think they for for a time better comics. Although I think in time, ever you know, it's gone back. And yeah, it ebbs and flows. Right. I guess depending. But on uh, I never up. lost interest, or nor have I not preferred the DC comic characters. I still do. Yeah, what do you think it is about them? I, I mean, they feel more fantastical to they, me, like they iconic. Do. They do. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, it's hard to say. I guess if, if I had discovered the Marvel characters first, perhaps I would feel different. Right. But there's just something to me when you say The Flash, you say Superman, you say Batman, you say Wonder Woman, you know. There's just something about those characters that, to me, are more iconic. And it's because their powers seem so base and real, you know. I mean, it, obviously they're not anywhere near real, but the idea that somebody can run fast, the idea that somebody has super strength and can fly, and uh, or that Batman was always my my favorite. Uh, you know, after I, when I was young, a Superman, and then I thought, well, hell, nothing bothers Superman. That's not as interesting. <laughs> so Batman, I thought, well, I could do this. Of course you can't. But, and there wasn't really that much crime in a town of 150. And mm-hmm. so I had my bat costume and I sat around a lot. No bat signal. Uh, but uh, I started studying martial arts, which I've done for 50-something years. I'm a grandmaster, according to other people. I never call myself that. But I've done uh, martial arts and I started studying all kinds of, you know, esoteric things uh, like Batman did. And unfortunately, I wasn't as good at learning those things. But I think Batman, in many ways, changed and influenced my life. It made me seek out to be as good as I could, as many things as I could, and to really go after life. And I still feel like I'm doing that. And I, I feel like I owe that, in, at least in great part, to Batman. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I have never even thought about that, but he's so much of a renaissance man. Like, he that is. character is, like, insanely talented at way too many things. Mm-hmm. But it's also inspirational to be like, hey, try a bunch of things. Try a bunch of things. I mean, 
he led me to being interested in all kinds of things. I mean, I studied when I was a kid. I was studying astronomy in that very limited child way and all those things. Of course, as, as I went on, I realized I wasn't very good at those things. I liked science, but I wasn't very good at math and things mm-hmm. like that. But I felt like that Batman gave me this lust for life. And I, I mean that very sincerely. I think a lot of people will hear that and go, what? But when you lived out in the wilds of East Texas, and I love East Texas, don't get me wrong, but I had a little different mindset than, than the people there. I came from a more um, imaginative sort of ilk. Um, I was a little bit more liberal-minded, a mm-hmm. lot, lot more liberal-minded. And um, these characters gave me a certain release, a certain solace, and uh, it was important to me. And... I I remember, you know, going to bed at night with my stack of comics and reading. And my parents would give me a dollar. I'd go down and buy 10 comics because there weren't tax. There was no tax on mm. that sort of thing. And, you know, I would have all these comics. is great. And then in the back they had, what well, I guess what you would call illegal comics in the sense that they had cut part of the cover off. They used to cut half the cover off, send it back, and say we couldn't sell this comic. And then they would keep the comic and sell it for a nickel, <laughs> which was half at that time and were were you did you read any horror comics growing up you know there were not uh, I didn't read EC comics yeah. but there were a few that bordered on horror comics that I remember they were really fairly tame because you had the comic code mm-hmm. that came along um, and by the time I was really aware of that our, our uh, supplier to the best of my knowledge never provided EC comics but what was weird is on this back table in the back where they kept those five cent comics there were stacks of old pulps Hmm. also half cut you know so once in a while I would look at those I don't remember ever buying any but I remember they let me read they let me stand there and read them because they knew me they just give me a stool and I'd sit in the back that's great and read yeah um so, you know, I got I read some of those, but my big influence was early on was comics and of course that and, and the other comic that was mu- important to me as much as DC was Classics Illustrated because it was all of these great novels, great writers, great short stories that had been put into these beautiful editions, great paintings. I mean, this stuff was meticulous. It was beautiful. And I read Moby Dick that way first and and, and you know, Jack London, all these things. And then, then I went out and found the books. I went out and found the short stories. Your gateway to actual It was my gateway, reading. my gateway drug. You <laughs> yeah. Know? My gateway drug was uh, was uh, DC Comics, and Classics Illustrated led me more directly to things that were considered classics. So by the time I was 18 or 20, I had read most of the classic novels. I had to go to another town when my mom went to a bigger town because there was no library where I was. And so we would go to Gladewater, and we'd go to the library, and I would check them out. And then when, when she would go back, and this was probably about an hour and a half from where we were, we would return them. And then what happened is a bookmobile, I found out, started coming through town. So I started checking most of them out through the bookmobile and reading them that way. And then later, that little community, more than a town, really, it's more of a community, got a library, and I, I read any book in it that I was interested in. Man. So I, I and I, I still am a very avid reader but at that time I was and I my dad was teaching me to box and I mean for, for me yeah you sound like a Batman at this point yeah yeah <laughs> and me it was a it was a really nice life except for having to go to school which I didn't you know love all that much it was more of those like you're gonna put your time into the other stuff outside yeah, of it the first three or four grades I really loved it because I was excited about learning but then I felt and this will sound conceited but I felt like that I would get the books the first year and I'd read them and by the time 
they started teaching them, I was already bored. Mm-hmm. You know, so I didn't. I when I got to the university, I went to college for. I always say I spent four years to get two years, but uh, I enjoyed that more. But I never finished the degree, and I, and I actually teach at Stephen F. Austin State University from time to time. I'm writer in residence there, but uh, I never got the education. I I decided that I wanted to write. I worked in the rose fields. I was a bouncer. I worked in aluminum chair factory. I worked in a mobile home factory. I was a janitor for many, many years, and I wrote part-time. And my stories began to sell, and my novels began to sell, and all of that circled back to the comics, which I still now touch on. I've got one out now with Mark Miller, who's adapted one of my stories, The Steam Man of the Prairie, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Dark Horse Comics. That's great. What? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about horror. How did that intersect? Well, the very first... I won't say the very first book, but the, one of the earliest things that my mother gave me was a copy of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories. And I mean, I was very young. A lot of people go, oh my God, don't do that. But she wanted me to read because, you know, like my dad, he knew how hard it was not, not to be able to read. And my mother had grown up poor. My, they were older when I was born. My dad was in his 40s. My mom was in her late 30s. I have a brother who is 17 years older than me. And so during that time... They were born, my dad was born in 1909, I think my mother in 1914. So they went, grew up and reached their adulthood during the Great Depression. My dad rode the rails occasionally and went from fair to fair and boxed for money and wrestled for money, you know, and he worked uh, doing every kind of job you could. And eventually my mother got a, bought him an old car and said, take it apart until you can do it blindfolded because he wanted to be a mechanic. And he did that and that's why, how he developed his Job and all the time I was growing up, he was a, a mechanic. And eventually, wow. finally got his own garage and all that stuff. But uh, you know, all of that led me to wanting to read him. So my mother got me this book, Edgar Allan Poe. And before that, I had read um, the very first book I ever remember being read to me was Uncle Remus. Mm-hmm. And there were all these tales, fantastical tales, influenced by African stories about these intelligent animals. You know, Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox. Mm -hmm. And so I think the fantasy aspect was embedded in me there. And then the horror with uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And then I think Jack London and Mark Twain gave me the more, uh, I I don't know, the more rural and gothic side. And and I was growing up in a place that was rural and gothic to some extent. And uh, in the meantime, I I was watching lots of television movies and noir movies and science fiction movies I, and, and it wasn't like now you had to stay up they'd show at midnight you had to stay up till midnight and you'd watch it then and if you went to the bathroom you just missed that part unless it was a commercial so uh i grew up on all those things and they all just sort of mixed together into some kind of stew yeah i'd say from story to story it really is like everything you just mentioned but i, f- I think you're so good at like kind of diving into these different pockets. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, but it still feels unified. Mm-hmm. Uh, because to me, there was nothing strange about that because I didn't grow up with it. This is good for you. This is bad for you to read. They just let me read. And, um, you know, the schools, of course, provided things. And this is good for you. This is bad for you. But Classics Illustrated had given me a true love 
for the classics. You know, I didn't love every one of them, but it, it led me to reading books that kids sometimes avoid or don't read. And, right. But the comics were that gateway that led me to that. And by when I was reading all this stuff, it just naturally became a mesh. Mm-hmm. So I, I became familiar with your work uh, probably after, like some other people may have. I saw the film Bubba Hotep. Yeah. And then I went backwards. and I and, visited with Don Coscarelli today. We had breakfast, yeah. Great. Uh, he's, I, I mean, I hear there's a, a sequel to that film in the works. Uh, you know, sometimes I hear that and sometimes I don't. Right. It's, uh, <laughs> I'd have to say that right now there's not. But it's, I don't rule it out. I don't rule it out. I don't rule it in. But so how did, well, I guess, uh, yeah, so I, I didn't even know that you worked on Batman, which was something that I yeah. loved and grew up on, but like until even later, which is mm-hmm. kind of crazy to like find out like, wait, you connect the dots to the things that you already like and you're like, yeah. well, I guess it makes sense. It's the same yeah. person whose yeah. work I like. Yeah. Um, so how does it feel to have your work adapted? Because I feel like there are situations where you've well, done it yourself and then... Yeah, I've done it myself and, uh, uh, but uh, I actually was very, very pleased with Bubba Hotep. Uh, I remember seeing they did Cold in July recently based on a novel yeah. of mine. And I was really excited about that. And I said, well, this is really pretty close. There's a few things missing. And then I went back and saw Bubba Hotep and I said, this is almost exactly the novella. Yeah. The novella's got some things they couldn't do, uh, I guess, special effects wise, things like that. But it was really close. So I like both adaptations, but that Bubba Hotep adaptation is very close. And he also did a incident on and off a mountain road, which was for Masters of Horror episode. Showtime. Showtime. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I've got the TV series coming out, and it's real close. I've been fortunate in the things that have been made, although a lot of things that didn't get made, I was very happy they did not get made. (laughs) And I adapted a number of things myself. I've sold screenplays to Ridley Scott and to... John Irvin and different people that, you know, I'm glad to have done that. That money was nice. Right. But they never got made. And uh, I regret that. But now that seems to be happening. And the truth is, in the past, a lot of the things that I wrote, I think, were hard to make or the people just weren't ready to do that. And I think all of a sudden... You know, my time is now. Yeah, I mean, people have settled into, I guess, what is like mainstream is now getting weirder. Yes, it which is, is wonderful because <laughs> the the stories that I, I I've written things that I think fit very well within genres, but I never sit down and think of myself as a genre writer or as a non-genre writer. Mm-hmm. It's not like that for me. It's not. I'm not an either or. I just is. I am this story, and elements of genre are there because that's the engine that excites me the most. And then elements of uh, literary things, those style and character and dialogue and things like that. I, I'm, I'm much more influenced by people like Flannery O'Connor and Hemingway and yeah. people like that. So I have this, you know, mesh. But I, again, I never stop and think. Well, I I don't want to be a genre writer. I, I don't care. You know, I don't want to be a literary writer. That's okay too. I don't care because I've sold things to literary magazines. I've sold things to, I guess, what you would call modern pulp or what was left of it and anthologies here and there I I always tell everybody I write like everybody I know is dead so I'm not writing for anybody other than me I think that's a good I mean you're also just you're writing what you want to write (laughs) that's right I mean you know if you you do this long enough you're a professional writer you you have periods where you 
You may write something because you gotta you gotta pay the bills, but that doesn't mean that you put a sack over its head and do it for old glory, as they used to say. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm very very serious about what I do, and some of the best things I've written were things that I, I felt like, well, I gotta pay the bills, I've gotta write this, but I'm gonna put my heart in it. And then sometimes, no matter how hard you try, something comes out professional. Uh, there's a level that you just don't fall below after a certain point. I've always compared it to making an, a, a, a great artistic um, building, uh, something to being an architect, but being a designer and making it unique, or being able to just build a chair. And that chair has to be sturdy, it has to be reasonably attractive, and it has to not fall apart. And that's the way I think of as a professional story. You should be able to do either level. That's a good analogy. <laughs> uh, well, why don't we talk about how you got into Batman the Animated Series? Mm-hmm. So you had a friend on the show. You saw this kind of Well, I had of a int- friend that was in the DC, or in DC comics. Uh-huh. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you saw that introductory sequence or what they sold the yeah. show on. Yeah, I didn't know that I would uh, hear anything else again. I guess uh, Bob must have thrown my name in the mill. And they. Uh, I had some Batman things I had done, the short stories and things like that. I did four further adventures of Batman and... I think it was a, the adventures of the further adventures of the Joker or something like that. But there were two volumes, and I wrote that, and then I ended up writing "Captured by the Engines," which was E N G I N E S for uh, Warner, which was a Batman novel. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I wrote a children's book, and I guess that led them to say, "Hey, I think this guy can do it." And then Michael Reeves was the story editor over there, a tremendous writer. He has a collection of short stories coming out there; just it's just amazing. But I started working for him. He was my story editor. And, of course, Bruce Tim, you know, had created all these wonderful designs. There was Paul Dini and uh, uh, th- there were Alan uh, Burnett. I mean, just all these great folks there. And it was it was the right moment. That's exactly it. And uh, I wrote scripts that I thought were extremely fun. I thought they were interesting. I thought it captured what they had suggested to me story-wise because they kind of gave you this is a the storyline we're looking for. Take okay. it from there, you know. They, and that's why they get story credit because they just say, "Okay, it's going to be this and this and this. Go." <laughs> and so you go, well, "Okay." And uh, so I got to write my dialogue, uh, and I wrote what I thought were directorial scripts. I wrote them almost like they were being directed instead of just, uh, you know, uh, I wrote a. a Shot by shot. I was gonna. I was gonna ask because I feel like your episodes of the series are particularly. They feel very specifically directed. Yeah, they're pre-directed. Yes. You know, in the <laughs> sense that the director make a few changes, but uh, there's things where I would have the you know the guy flip the page. I mean, flip the dollars, and it would lead into the scene. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they did a lot of that stuff. And I remember Michael Reeves. He always wanted to do the spinning newspaper. So he you had that in read my yeah, lips. So we did that. Yeah, we both talked about. <laughs> they that. gave it a little '60s Batman sting. Yes, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and you know, there's the thing about that series though. There's a lot of '50s Batman look, but with more of what was the uh, '80s and '90s Batman feel. Yeah. To some extent, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful mixture. And in some ways, I've preferred a lot of their animated to a lot of the comics because they've maintained the original feeling that I had when I read those comics, but yet they have matured enough that I can enjoy them. And it's the same way that that animated series, they later on, they sort of kind of trying to make it more children-oriented, and I think they ruined it because they had it in such a way that children could love it and adults could love it. And I really look forward to watching every episode, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I love, let's talk Read My Lips, uh, yeah. Scarface and the Ventriloquist. 
Uh, this is one of the best episodes. Also, the music that accompanies it is. My son loves this one better of all the ones I've done. Really? Yeah. yeah. What does he love about it? Just he, I, I just think he loves that the whole thing with the uh, ventriloquist dummy, and I, uh, he, he gets all the jokes. And, yeah. and he was a kid when it came out, and he always loved that one the best of the ones I did. Well, it's like the jokes are like sometimes jokes in in children's television do not hit, or they're. No, just not funny. Well, and I feel like they. Hit, I feel like yeah. the dialogue in this is snappy well, and that's, feels. That's one thing I had fun with is I wrote my own dialogue and and we when Michael Reeves and I talked about it we wanted a very noirish mm-hmm. sort of look so that it looked like those old noir stories so that made me think okay I need to write noirish dialogue and and set the scene so that they would look noirish and I kind of like I said I kind of pre-directed them mm-hmm. uh, I didn't do maybe every shot but it's pretty close and I also wrote in my scripts things that nobody ever saw in the film like which, what kind of stuff well I, I think just little humorous descriptions and things <laughs> like that sometimes they, they call that hype in the script and some people don't like that I always think there's a balance because if I can get you excited about the script then that gives you a feeling of an attitude that you bring to it as, uh, as an actor or voice actor or as a painter or you know animator whatever yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I recently heard from like a, somebody who's kind of a voice acting director. Uh, they're like, "What well, your job as a voice actor is to drain the ink from the pen, yeah, <laughs> uh, or from the page." Excuse me. Yeah, no, I, uh, I understand what you meant. But uh, so this episode feels to me what I love about it is that it is like a gangland story. It's kind yeah. of got like a '30s '40s gangster yeah. vibe, but it also has this kind of real grounded horror element to it. It does, like it the does. reaction to the Scarface it, ventriloquist. Yeah, story. and you know. The look is uh, somewhat like the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. In yeah, some ways. very expressionistic. And those old noir, yeah, noir films and the big uh, rhino and all that. So uh, um, that, that I think, too, is because Batman himself is seeped in the gothic tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so in the 50s. He went through his science fiction and everybody's happy period. But nonetheless, when I was a kid, I read those and I remembered them as being darker than they actually were. <laughs> but... My love for horror and my love for noir and detective and Batman and comics in general all went into that script, perhaps more so than any of the others. Uh, and I was really pleased with all of the you know the actors and the people who brought it to life and. It was a great episode. I mean, I love the set piece or like his hideout being in like a mannequin. Factory yeah, yeah, that was of, that was wonderful. One of the like creepier places you can set something and yeah. a, to get away with that in a cartoon that is technically aimed at kids is right. great. Like it was beautiful, yeah. hey, dangling over like pointy mannequins. <laughs> yeah, and you know, ventriloquist dummies have always kind of creeped me out. Oh yeah, you know, ever since I was saw Dead of Night, <laughs> which was the old horror film that used to watch it come on TV every now and again late at night. And one of the episodes was about the ventriloquist dummy, and it was scary as hell. I think Michael Redgrave starred in it. Uh, And if you can ever find it, you should. It goes back quite a ways. It's an older film. But that one sequence stuck with me. And then there was, I believe it was uh, was Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock. I forget which. I believe it was Twilight Zone. Talking Tina? No, that's another one. That that's one's a another Twilight That's that Zone. Richard Matheson. But, okay. but there was uh, one where the guy had an actual ventriloquist oh, okay. dummy. And it was like the dummy was actually the living person and the guy was the dummy. You well, know? I and love they that. they kind of traded their positions. The interplay in this episode that you kind of brought, like you never quite 
you know, feel comfortable even once yeah. you figure out. Like it's even more uncomfortable to realize that it isn't something that's magical or, or you know, like yeah. horrific in a supernatural way. Yeah. It's just this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how did you approach? Did you know about the character beforehand? Were you familiar with him? Or? You know, I was not. And I think the ventriloquist may well have been invented for the animation. I don't. I think in the comics he came later. I could be wrong, and I would. I suggest you look that up. But I believe that this was his introduction. Uh, and they just, but, you know, they laid out the basic idea, and I said, yeah, I can run with that. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a few things, you know, here and there that I would have done a little different, that they veered away. Like what? Well, there's a scene where Batman gets on board the boat, and all of this this uh, 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 gold, or I forget what it was, falls on him. These, and it would have crushed him like a fly. Yeah, I remember watching that. And, I'm and like, I, he's I, dead, his bones I, yeah, are broken. <laughs> my original thing was a, one brick or two fell out and knocked him out, or they pushed it with it. But all of that, I thought, nah. You know, but that's that's... That's maybe carried it too far. I mean, it isn't a cartoon, but I've always had that feeling that it's best when it's close to reality as you, you know, can be do reason. Yeah, you already have a guy who's yeah. dressing up as right, a bat. Right, as a bat. And terrifying You've already carried people. it pretty far. Yeah. You know, you don't want to keep gilding the lily as Right, grounded around him. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a couple things like that, but I tell you what, I, I, I watch that every once in a while. My fault. I watch that every once in a while, and I, I still get a big kick out of it. So I'm glad to have been a part of it. Yeah, I, I guess, like, I mean, I'm just kind of diving or jumping all over the place with this one. But the way it starts is very specifically shot, too. And, like, the way, you know, that kind of, like, elevator shaft stuff yes. and the way, like, how much of that did you direct? All I, of that? I wrote all those things in there. That's fantastic. You know? And that, what, what they did is they had these general guidelines that they would lay out that they're robbing this, they're doing this. And then it was up to the writer to give what the, that story, but also you had a lot of leeway. I, I could veer from it as long as it didn't become something, you know, so far afield of it that they, you know, didn't recognize what they wanted to do. But they gave me a lot of liberty. I felt like I had a, a lot of creative, uh, you know, uh, opportunities to do different things, and I did. You know, so it was fun. So how much, there's like a reference to like Zatara, the magician. Mm -hmm. uh, how much of that was like you putting that in there or was that something they that they mentioned worked? that They mentioned that, but I was familiar with that. So it was just fun, you know. And sometimes they would have, no, maybe we could do this or I don't know, maybe it's this. And, and then I'd go, nah, that's not, not any of those things. It's this. Or, oh, yeah, that's good. You know, you could kind of go the way you wanted to go as long as you kept it in the general structure. It's very much like film, and that includes animation, is very much a community project. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, you, if you go in and you claim credit for the whole thing, then you're just a, you know, an egotistical liar because <laughs> you have so many people that have to contribute. But I have always felt and that the writer is premier. No story, nothing. Well, especially in television. Yeah, television is a little bit more writer-centric, yeah. yeah. So when it came to the process, were you writing from Texas? Yes. Cool. I was uh, working on a computer in, in Texas. and uh, What a dream. <laughs> yeah. I, I was trying to think because we didn't have email then. Uh, I, I can't remember if I, if I mailed the scripts. I probably FedEx. Faxing it maybe? No? It's very possible. I had a fax machine, but I don't remember doing it that way. I think I, I think I actually sent them FedEx or something, and then Michael, however he got them, he would read them and say, ah, "I think maybe we ought to do this, maybe or something here. Oh, this is good. Maybe this, you know." I, one of the best editors ever was Michael Reeves. Yeah. Hmm. What was the process like from, I guess, for people who don't know how it works, mm -hmm. like you know, from the moment you kind of talked about the the story, uh, you're you're kind of handed this general idea. Yeah, they, how you, long? 
I wrote about a one about a week. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm fairly fast writer anyway, and if uh, I had a, the storyline and, and then Michael and I would discuss it, and you know, he might say, "Let's put a little emphasis here," or uh, I remember sometimes, and I, I'm trying to remember an exact thing. Oh, well, when we did Perchance to Dream, for example, um, the scene was is that he would Batman would jump off the balcony to prove it was a dream, right? And the censors were afraid to show that fall, and so we had it. We did it in kind of a surrealistic Picasso or, or Dolly sort of way. I think mm-hmm. more like a Dolly, where the imagery and stuff where he's falling is not quite as scary. It was not supposed to be, but I thought it was creepier. I oh. thought they actually got a creepier <laughs> yeah. take by doing that. And so I think that, but there were little things like that that we'd had to change. That's one I remember. I I don't remember too many others. You know. Tell me a little bit about uh, Perchance to Dream. How was writing that one? That was the first one I did, and and uh, I really enjoyed doing that one a lot. Um, I never really checked to see if it was true that you couldn't read in a dream, but I like the idea. Yeah, it's a fun idea. I think yeah. it's something that I, when I watched it when I was younger, I believed that for yeah, years. I yeah. think it is not true. I don't believe it is. But I boy, like does it, it sound real. It sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's, it's not about what's true, it's what you make people believe is true. The trick to making people believe fantastic things is not to write a ton of fantastic things. It's it's to ground it in reality so that I think Richard Matheson used to say something like, you know, his stories were like everybody's sitting around the breakfast table and something crawls out of the sugar bowl. Mm-hmm. I believe that was the example he gave. But if anything can happen, people lose interest. Right. But if it has a certain limitation, um, you know, or the idea is a singular idea that grows, like uh, also referring again to Richard Matheson, uh, I Am Legend, is that the world is gradually taken over by these vampires or whatever. They, his vampires were somewhat different than classic vampires, of sure. course. But that was, the, that was the only fantastic element in it, and it was actually science-based in the book. So it was science-fictional-based. Hmm. So... You know, he didn't overdo it. He didn't, if you have one dragon having, you know, 50 unicorns and all that sort of stuff, pretty soon it can become so much that you no longer believe Well, you it. check out. Yeah. yeah, you check out. And and if anything can happen and you can all of a sudden find an amulet or you can pull one out of your butt, so to speak, <laughs> it's, it's nowhere near as good as if there are certain limitations to what can be done. And therefore it makes the quest or the, or the, the, the plan to rescue or whatever it is you're doing more difficult because there aren't so many avenues to success. Well, I think that's why these earlier seasons of the Batman show worked so well. Is that mm-hmm. They focused on that one weird or unusual thing, right, right. and that was it. Absolutely. You know, and and uh, uh, I think that's exactly right, and, and I believe that that's true of most fiction. I mean, there are exceptions to every rule. There is no real rule, and uh, I believe all rules are made to be broken, and, but somehow if you learn the rules then you can break them. Same way in martial arts. Mm-hmm. You learn certain ideas about things, but you realize in real situations that things tend to go foul. You know. But if you've learned all these different ways of looking at it, then you can adapt. Sure, yeah. I work in, I do a lot of improv, improvisational comedy and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like there are set rules when you first learn how to do this, right? right. Teach it, you know, and it's like, you know, always say yes. And it's like, well, great. You, you learn that so you're accepting ideas and building with people. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, that doesn't literally mean you can't say no because real people say no. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. You, you learn the rules to break them. It's the same thing in martial arts. It's the same thing in writing. It's the same thing in anything that's a creative endeavor. 
whatever. If you're a singer, and like my daughter Casey is a singer, you may learn certain things that you, this is this note, and you hit it this note, but you, your voice is your own. And in writing, and you, and you can play with it, but in writing, that's it too. My voice is my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it shines too. Like Thanks. it's... Uh, this ep- I mean, I'm jumping again, but uh, so uh, let me back up to what sure. walking through the episode. So you would kind of write this sure. in a week. Uh, how yeah. many drafts would you do? I don't remember doing that many drafts. I, well, what I would do is Michael would get it and read it, and he would have some suggestions. And I think we tended to like correct those points. You know, yeah, just that point was I don't think just I just little tweaks. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I, and this is. I think I remember this fairly. I, I write pretty tight, and I pretty much was on it, you know. Um, I did a Superman episode. Uh, Identity Crisis yeah, and Bizarro. And, and, yeah, and I think I, I think I strayed too much from that. I ended up getting story credit, and somebody else got script credit, and they did a better job than I did. Hmm. And, uh, and I think part of that was that Superman was not as dear to my heart as Batman. But also, I think that it was just for whatever reason, I found that script a little bit more difficult. You know? Yeah. Well, I say I did the same thing with Son of Batman. I, I I did that one, and it was different because the way they wanted things done had changed from the time I wanted things done. Not necessarily yeah. bad, but just different. Right. You're adjusting to yeah. whatever like the new DC mandate right. might be. Right. How their characters right. are portrayed. I, yeah. I wanted to touch on Showdown sure. because you are, you know, a, one of the the main Jonah Hex guys. Well, thank goodness for that. And, <laughs> and Tim Truman, one of the greatest comic book artists of all time. Feels got, appropriate. We can't yeah, not talk about right, Jonah. Right. Uh, so when would you, what was your first memory of reading Jonah Hex? Well, you know, I read Jonah in the, I believe it came out in the early 70s, if I remember correctly. And uh, I remember seeing him on the stands. And at that particular time, I wasn't reading as many comics. And that one jumped out at me. Uh, because strangely enough, I had never really been a Western fanatic for the books, but I was a Western fanatic for the films and the comics. And then later, when I started reading the right books, I became more so books than anything else. I love Western fiction. But when I saw those, they they appealed to me because they struck a chord with the old spaghetti Westerns that uh, I had seen in the 60s that, that uh, Clint Eastwood had mm-hmm. done and uh, many, many other people after him. Uh, so... I remember them as being more horrific and scarier than they were. And so when I was asked to write Jonah Hex, I went back and looked at him. I, I liked him a lot. John Albano did a wonderful job. But I was surprised that there weren't as many horror elements as my mind had projected onto them. So by the time the 90s rolled around, I, I misremembered. Hmm. Although I remembered his tone and everything. But... When Tim and I did it, I told him, I said, look, I, I want to do this, but I've got, I got to reinvent it a little for me. And I want to uh, make him an East Texan. I wanted to make a, a Confederate. And I didn't want to make him necessarily somebody that saw all the wrongs of Confederacy, although I do personally. I wanted him somewhere caught as a man of his time and yet a man evolving out of that time. And then I wanted to uh, bring in a supernatural element. And I wanted him to be... Uh, not some guy that came from a, a family where the people had money. I wanted him to be the kind of dirt poor people I knew and kind of grew up. And I felt I could give that a, a more realistic view. And I also wanted to show that his evolving views on things were changing. It had turned into a form of cynicism in some cases, satire in others, and uh, just a, a raw, dark sense of humor. Wow. 
So what was it like adapting him for a cartoon? Like, did you already feel? Yeah, I, I knew that guy. Like, you're like, great, yeah. I know him in and out. This is yeah, easy. It's, it was in and out. It was easy. But but you know, I, I think we they asked me to come up with some ideas at first, and those ideas I came up with. No, the, the Alan Burnett liked, but we couldn't get other people excited in them. So they had this comic that they had, and they said, "Well, adapt this comic." And so I did, but I, I really sawed it down a lot. What were the initial ideas? Do you happen to remember what mm. you pitched? I know it's been a while. I, I did I did one science fictional related one. That's all I can remember. Then it took place on a train. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and it had one of the other characters from the DC Western Universe, the female character, but I can't remember what her name was now. Uh, and this one ended up being kind of like a Rachel Ghoul kind of framing device, right? Oh, you're talking about the shoot. The, the no, no, no. I'm sorry. I, I jumped ahead to the smaller one. That's oh. my fault. No, no. On that one, they gave me, they said, yeah, we got this Jules Verne, Rush Al Ghul. Gotcha. Go. <laughs> and uh, it just hit me just right. And I, I loved writing Jonah's dialogue because the, the, the Jonah Hex I told you about right. was the one in my mind. Gotcha. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I, I loved doing that a whole lot. And I, I had this great love for Westerns by then at that point and, and later went on to, to read many of them and write some. Did you love Jules Verne as well? Did oh, you God, up? yes. That I, was a big thing for me as well. Well, too, when I, I was telling you about Edgar Allan Poe mm-hmm. and also H.G. Uh, Wells. Yep, all of those guys. All those things were very important to me when I was a child. Science fiction and, and fantasy and horror, um, I, 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 I go so far as to say it saved my life, but it certainly made my life far more interesting. And then it led me to mystery and crime and you know all kinds of other things. But those were the things that I think first appealed because they were fantastical and colorful and imaginative in nature, you know. And so when I got to write a Jules Verne type thing, which a Master of the World is really what that is, if yeah. you've ever read Master of the World. And there's a there's a movie that's vaguely similar to the book that was done with Charles Bronson. Uh, you know, I've never seen the film. Yeah, I don't remember if it was called Master of the World or not, but it's, it's it, that's what it is, you know. And uh, Vincent Price is Vincent Price. Well, I got to see it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it was great for me to do that, to bring all those characters together, you know. Well, that's so cool. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Man, I am so thankful Joe was kind enough to stop by my place while visiting from Texas, of all places. He shared so many great stories that he'll be back next episode with more to say. So get ready for a double dose of Lansdale. But the show's not over yet, guys. Stick around after these short plugs for a new final segment. First and only plug, this show that you're listening to. If you happened upon this by wandering into a cave and it was just echoing, that's strange, but you can also find it an easier way, which is by subscribing in iTunes. Hey, while you're at it, why not rate the show and leave a nice comment? If you don't like it, well, I can't really stop you, and I haven't been able to stop you, and I'm not really trying to stop you. I think everybody's opinion is valid. How's that for appeasing literally every single person, even the people who hate the show? Uh, Even better, if you do like the show, do you want to pass it along to some nerdy news outlet or recommend it for some press? Or maybe you're somebody who writes press or features podcasts on a podcast about podcasts. Actually, that's a thing that exists now. It's called Sampler, and it's great. Never mind, that was supposed to be a joke, but that's a real thing. Check that podcast out. That's an unexpected plug. Whatever, share this around to people who like Batman. I really want to get it out there to as many ears as possible, because that's why I make it. Follow at BTAS Podcast or at Hey Justin on Twitter for updates. Email me at BTASpodcast at gmail.com and go to www.BTASpodcast.com for the same stuff in website form. 
And now, Kevin Conroy bought Corner. That's right, this is a new segment where my robot assistant, who looks identical to Batman voice actor Kevin Conroy, gives shout-outs to people donating to this show in fun ways. Hello, Justin. I am so dang excited to have my own corner of the podcast spelled with a K. Yeah, thanks for helping out, Kevin Conroy bot. Anything for you, daddy. Yeah, okay, enough of that. Sorry, my papa. Today in the corner with a K, we'll be thanking people who donated to the show on patreon.com slash Podcast already, as if this were the end of the E.T. Adventure theme park ride at Universal Studios Hollywood, Florida, or Japan. Either way, cue the music, KCB. Goodbye, and thank you, Travis Mydell, Jason LeBlanc, Luke Mears, Ryan Kachi, Keith Pepper, Big Rin Don, MacArthur, Kason Billiard, John Lucas Arundel, Ryan Young, Jessica Blackbird, Doug Grisman, Stuart Simpson, Stephen, Brandon, Jacob Negley, and Andy Pavlik, even though he didn't request this. Time to go back to my home planet, Elia. Well, that was fun and weird. We'll see if this segment happens again. How will it happen again? Well, by you guys donating to the show at patreon.com slash podcast. I produce and edit this myself, so anything you can spare would be great. And we've also got physical rewards like stickers and Batman pogs from the 90s and the opportunity to appear on the show. Yes, you, talking about your favorite episode. That's not physical, but boy, is it emotionally gratifying. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Triela helped produce the theme song. And Harry Chaskin is the voice of the podcast. Jace Armstrong will be made immortal forever as Kevin Conroybot. Thank you to my guests, Joe Lansdale, as well as his daughter, Kelsey Lansdale, for stopping by. Amanda Meadows and Jeffrey Golden of the Devastator Press and beyond. They are all amazing people. Lastly, thanks to This American Life producer Tori Malatia for putting me in my place after suggesting a theme for an upcoming This American Life by saying, Shut up! I want your opinion, dummy. I'll pull your string. Look, I- I'm sorry, Tori was a jerk to me, you guys, and I was a jerk to you earlier. I think my days of being a jerk are over. So I'll see you in two weeks for a new Batman the Animated Podcast. You dummies! <laughs> Psych! I'm a jerk!